0: From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and I'll guide you through the next hour where we're going to take on some of the major topics in our region, healthcare and growth. Later on we hear what happened at this month's Asheville City Council retreat, which was at the center of a lawsuit over how much of it would be open to the public. Then we look at the comparatively slow pace of work coming out of the North Carolina General Assembly. But first, Pre-pandemic, during pandemic, post-pandemic, the aftermath of the sale of Mission Health to HCA Healthcare won't ever be far from the minds of many people in Western North Carolina. The independent monitor, Gibbons Advisors, appointed to ensure that HCA follows through on the promises it made when it purchased Nonprofit Mission, held its first meeting of 2021 this month. The first meeting since the full scope of the pandemic became apparent to us all, and the first since nurses at Mission Hospital in Nashville unionized in response to HCA taking over over. BPR's Lily Kanep attended this month's meeting. She spoke with me from her office in Silva and begins by reminding us what the Independent Monitor does.
1: The Independent Monitor is an independent firm that was chosen in part by Dogwood Health Trust um, with HCA and then approved by the Attorney General. And this firm's whole mission is to make sure that HCA is following through on 15 commitments that were part of the asset purchase agreement when it bought Mission in 2019. And so whenever there is something that Seems like it might not be in compliance with that asset purchase agreement. It is the independent monitor's job to advise Dogwood Health Trust, which is the foundation that was created with the profits of that sale, so that they can then, you know, kind of call out HCA and say, hey, you're not following this deal that you made with the North Carolina Attorney General. You need to to change it and provide these services for people in Western North Carolina.
0: And among those stipulations in the asset purchase agreement, the sale document of the sale, this goes about service. This goes about keeping hospitals open. There are many, many of those. And the independent monitor did hold some meetings. It's first round of meetings last year. They happened right before the pandemic happened. So people might be forgetting them in the haze of what has been the last year. So remind us about those meetings, what took place and what you heard. You were at a couple of them. I was at one of them. What did we hear?
1: Absolutely. So the independent monitor, part of the the deal for their work was that they were supposed to be able to go out into the community and hear from people about the services that they were providing. And so, you know, as you are reminding everyone about the pandemic, you know, that's been really hard to do this year, but right before the pandemic, they had um, six or seven meetings across the region. They went to all their five regional hospitals and as well as mission health, they went to all of those counties and met with people in the region Uh, To hear from them. And I mean, the meetings that I was at, um, the independent monitor at the virtual meeting this last week described them as spirited. Um, because it, people had a lot to say. There were there were a lot of concerns that were brought forward. Um, some of those have been addressed. Uh, some of those, I think, people are still waiting for answers.
0: And obviously, a lot has gone on since then with the pandemic and with the uh, nurses' admission hospital in Asheville unionizing. So, the Independent Monitor is now doing its second round of meetings, second year of meetings, essentially. And the first one was earlier this month. You watched it virtually. Tell us what happened.
1: The Independent Monitor went through just kind of a a refresh. It was just reminding everybody what their role is. I think they do really just want to make sure that people were clear, you know, they're, they're not being paid by HCA. They're employed by Dogwood. They really wanted to be clear, um, what those commitments are that are outlined in the asset purchase agreement. There are only 15 commitments in there. A lot of people's questions don't necessarily fall in, under the purview of the independent monitor. Um, so it was kind of just a meeting of, of answering questions and just reminding folks what they had done over the last year. Um, HCA is responsible for do, putting out an annual report to the monitor every year and that, that came out in April. Going through all of those those requirements that are in the asset purchase agreement, and advising Dogwood Health Trust um, on whether or not HCA is following those. So, it was quite a long meeting. There was a lot of community involvement as far as as questions, and just the independent monitor trying to to explain
0: their role in this in this position. So, you mentioned the first report came out. Um to see whether HCA has been compliant or non-compliant and all the things that it agreed to when it purchased mission, have they been found in non-compliance and anything yet?
1: Not yet. Um, In 2019, Dogwood Health Trust, you know, in their end of year annual report said that they did not find HCA to be non-compliant. And so far we haven't gotten to the, you know, 2020 report yet, which it is expected to come out uh, sometime by the end of May at the latest, Um, but there were a couple of things that came up that I found really interesting during the virtual meeting that the independent monitor said that HCA was not non-compliant, but that they did have discussions with them about some of the issues that were happening in Western North Carolina, and HCA did make changes and so the, the independent monitor wanted to be really clear that, you know, these were not noncompliance issues, but they were things that changed. There have also been some other issues that they've gone back and forth on as far as um, Attorney General Stein has asked HCA about uh, sexual assault nurses and their availability in Western North Carolina. And charity care has also been one of the really big question marks for the region as far as, you know, what is happening. One of the ways that they explain that is when Mission was being purchased by HCA, they had the option to continue to move forward with Mission's charity care policy. Um, And instead, the board of Mission felt that HCA's policy was actually going to cover them better. And so they did make changes to that charity care policy um, to go with the HCA policy instead here's a clip of, of Ron winters he's the kind of pr- principal on with the independent monitor this is him talking at the virtual meeting uh,
0: but I think it, it, it is it is difficult to qualify immediately uh, for charity care and until you do I think they have the right uh, to ask you to to, uh, to put to, to make a deposit and I don't think you have the right to get it back
1: and then the other sort of dispute um, that is a non-dispute. <laughs> um, was the transitional care unit at Transylvania Regional Hospital was closed, and this is you know something that HCA said you know we're not getting rid of this service because it's still available at other parts of the hospital, and so that sort of is the line of when are they not being compliant? Is this service if the service is less. Is it still available, or is that uh, when they're in non-compliance with the asset purchase agreement? So in that case, Transylvania Regional Hospital, the community brought forward a concern, and they they reopened the unit. And so they're the independent monitor explained, you know, that that wasn't they didn't see that as them being in non-compliance, or is that being an official dispute? But it's definitely a time that the independent monitor, you know, brought up an issue to HCA, and then policy. Drastically changed.
0: Transylvania is one of 18 counties in the service area, so, and all counties have been bringing things up since the sale occurred. There are a few things that I think people are more passionate about and care more about in this area than than how this sale is going to affect their health care. So, but we we'll use Transylvania County as an example here because of what you just mentioned. With this particular unit being restored at Transylvania Regional Hospital, does that answer all the questions that have been answered by the people or that have been asked by the people in Transylvania County?
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no. Um, the Brevard City Council uh, recently wrote a letter in February to uh, Attorney General Josh Stein asking, explaining kind of what's happening there. Um, they've seen a real loss in primary care physicians. They said they've lost um, 14 health care providers. In the letter, it's 15 I spoke with um Brevard City Councilwoman Maureen Kopeloff, she said, you know, one person has actually signed on with HCA, but this is something we've seen throughout the region. Um, local physicians, surgeons, um, other people have not been signing updated contracts with HCA, and they have left. Um, for example, in Brevard, 14 people have left. And so they feel like, you know, this is a major issue in a loss of access to care, And, um, you know, Maureen Kopeloff explains it, I think very clearly and just saying, you know, that while primary care isn't on the list for a key healthcare service, that's a part of the asset purchase agreement. You know, this is something that's really important to their community. Primary care is so important to our community and, uh, you know, making sure that we've got easy local access to primary care uh, is a critical uh, community concern. And this is something that, you know, has come up across the region at all of these regional hospitals. Um, And Maureen has a good point here. She basically explains the gist of this whole conversation. We don't have a good mechanism in the uh, agreement with the independent monitor for really Uh, enforcing or tracking or uh, holding uh, HCA accountable to the level that we thought we did when the sale went through.
0: This is going to be a continuing issue and a continuing major topic of conversation throughout Western North Carolina for years, if not decades to come. So what's next now? this first meeting by the independent monitor, are they going to be holding additional meetings and will they do more meetings in person uh, once it's safe to do so?
1: On the horizon, there are a couple things that are that are coming up pretty quickly. Um, Sir Brevard has kind of called on other towns and counties in the region to write their own letters to North Carolina attorney general, Josh Stein. So I think we're looking to see what the attorney general has to say about all of these questions. The annual report from HCA is going to be coming out in this month or next month, and so that report will answer, you know, some of these questions and give an overview of what HCA has been doing this year, and then the independent monitor is looking to get back out into the community as soon as, um, you know, it's safe to do so with the pandemic, so I think we we will start to hear from them and hopefully, you know, see them out here in western North Carolina pretty soon.
0: Lastly, a lot of your reporting uh, focusing on what's been happening in Macon County with the hospital there, with Angel Medical Center, but also Macon County at first, First was where we heard a lot of pushback about the sale uh, and concerns and all that. Have they had anything addressed within this, too?
1: Macon County, you know, uh, Mayor Bob Scott of Franklin has had a lot of questions. He just released a letter this week to Attorney General Josh, Josh Stein, um, you know, echoing a lot of these issues um, that we just talked about across the region as well seeing physicians leave surgeons Um, angel medical center which is the hospital in franklin is they are building a new hospital there's still no word yet on what is going to happen with the old hospital Um, ground on the new hospital is going to be broken at the end of this month
0: That's BPR's Lily Kinepp. You can read more of her reporting on the independent monitor for HCA's purchase of Mission Health with the free BPR mobile app or at our website, bpr.org. After a short break, we hear what happened at Asheville City Council's retreat this month. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush. Asheville City Council held its annual retreat earlier this month, taking place in the spacious arena at Harris Cherokee Center, Asheville, to allow for social distancing. Initially, a portion of the meeting was not going to be open to the public until five media outlets, including Blue Ridge Public Radio, Wild suit, a Buncombe County judge agreed, and the whole event was open to the public. One of those who went in person was Asheville Citizen Times reporter Joel Burgess. He joined me via Zoom to recap what was discussed, beginning with why lawmakers hold a retreat at all.
2: What they have traditionally done, and a lot of governing bodies do this uh, for for cities and counties across the state, is they will have an annual meeting where they kind of huddle and talk about sort of big long term goals. A lot of their meetings. Uh, are occupied with things that have to be decided pretty quickly, but this is a time they get back and sort of strategize and say, hey, here's what um, we'd like to see the city aim for over the next year, two years, three years, whatever. I I always, and I'll just as an aside, I always find it an interesting exercise and it's probably a good idea to do these types of things though, It can often be thwarted by reality, (laughs) meaning that things happen, events happen, pandemics happen, protests happen that suddenly jar the city and and can sort of
0: shake up those priorities.
2: But anyway, that's what an annual retreat is.
0: So on the first day of this retreat, it included a team building exercise. Now, initially, that was not going to be open to the public. Five media organizations in uh, in Asheville, including both of our organizations, Mountain Express as well and ABL Watchdog and Carolina Public Press, brought this lawsuit to open this up to the public. And eventually, it was ruled right before the day before the retreat that that happened. So it was open to the public. It was not live streamed, at least to the team building exercise. But you were there in person. So tell us what this lives this uh, this team building exercise was, and how did it go, and what did it really focus on?
2: Uh, that that was fascinating because. You had the majority of the council uh, is actually new. Uh, they were either newly elected, or in the case of, um, of councilwoman uh Antoinette Mosley, uh newly appointed. And so a lot of it was this concept of how do we get the council to just sort of function together? And again, I, I find I find that to be an interesting exercise because as a body, it's not necessarily their role to work. As a team, I mean, they they vote on things and then the majority uh, wins like in, in any governing body and that's the decision. But what was happening is that the mayor was at least trying to get them to, if they were going to disagree about things, have a way to express it early, to to have a, a degree of civility, to allow them to communicate better. So that uh, and I'm trying to remember, there was a a, a great um, sort of uh, segue from uh, Gwen, uh, Gwen Whistler, who at, at time at one time was the vice mayor. And she was saying, look, it's fine if you're going to essentially uh blast me in public but just let me know ahead of time (laughs) you know that's what she was asking for and saying hey if you're gonna go to the media maybe just tell us hey here's a stand i'm gonna take i'm gonna disagree with all you guys i'm not gonna be part of this vote but i will but I'm, i'm gonna let you know ahead of time so it's it's sort of just they're trying to establish just some some ground rules and and uh maybe some you know a sense of decorum i guess it might be the term uh for, for the council. And so it was very interesting. And they had, um, they had some facilitators who came in and worked with them on this. And, you know, one thing they realized is that they are facing um, a pretty interesting and, and historic time in Asheville.
0: The team building exercise was also one of the reasons that it was initially supposed to be closed to the public was that it would allow them to talk more personally or have reveal personal information or personal feelings and all that sort of stuff uh, about themselves and maybe about their, their fellow council members. Did any of that, did anything like that come up?
2: Absolutely. And well, the interesting thing is, yeah, they said, um, look, you know, we're just going to be talking about personal things. It's not necessarily about conducting the the public business. And I've just got to talk a little bit about the lawsuit and, um, Open records law, and and that is what the law talks about. The law talks about if, you, if the governing body is getting together to conduct public business, then it has to be open to the public unless it, it meets this specific definition of a closed meeting. And those are things like if you're going to talk about uh, an employee and talk about their their you know their performance or things like that, there's a certain amount of privacy given to them. Or if they're going to get um, advice from their attorney, there's sort of this attorney-client privilege. And they said, well, you know, this isn't going to be a closed meeting and it's also going to be, we're not going to be doing public business. We're just going to kind of talk about ourselves. Well, I don't know if, if um, what they did talk about was originally what they planned to talk about, but there certainly was some policy making aspects. And one of the interesting things was sort of who do you represent? Who do you, who do you feel like you're, you're speaking for? And uh, I'm, I'll bring up uh, Antoinette Mosley again. She's one of the the Black Council members who who is who have joined the council recently, and she said, uh, "I'm here to represent, you know, uh, Black residents, Black women residents, and actually Black Native women residents." And so they they kind of got into some of those things and and personally why they got into why they started to get into public service, and um, yeah, it, it was a lot of it was. Uh, A little bit about, you know, here's who I am. Here's how I feel. But there was definitely
0: some uh, things that I think related to public policy and what they talked about. And certainly where people are coming from and how they view themselves and representing clearly is going to affect policy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned that it comes at this very interesting time. And I believe part of the discussions there, the mayor said something along the lines of this is a very different city, certainly different than when she was first elected in 2013, or first took the office in 2013. So let's talk about that. What was the talking about where Asheville is right now and where it's going to be in the future? Because it is a very changing city because of population growth and its national profile.
2: I think that people that have been here long enough, they, they could probably just start ticking off on both hands. You know, how, how has Asheville changed? Um, if we remember uh, folks that have been here in the 90s, um, the story is, and, and we all saw it, that a lot of downtown was boarded up. Um, cost of living uh, was low, wages were kind of low. Um, and then uh, really it became a tourist Mecca and property costs went up um the wages necessarily have not gone up um we have seen the impacts of that differently on different communities Asheville's um black residents uh really have have maybe borne the brunt of a lot of these changes and we've seen a lot of outflow of of black residents people largely young african-americans who have left the city we've seen that the population decline we've seen um of course that's tied in with what's happening nationally in terms of a, a, a reckoning is the, the word that's often used about racial justice. That is certainly happening in Asheville. Um, we're seeing a just a, a really big rise in homelessness, and again, that's not unique to Asheville. Though I think we are we are seeing a lot of it, and that's that's attributed in large part to the pandemic. Um, and there's. Traffic now, which is interesting, and there's talk about growing pains in that way. There's there's an emphasis on public transit. Are we going to be able to really grow a transit system that uh, helps everyone? We're, the city is going to get twenty six million dollars, and now we've we've recently learned maybe a little bit more from uh, this this COVID aid uh, passed by the feds and signed by the president. That's what are they going to do with it it's it's really unprecedented the amount of money the amount of aid that is going to be flowing in both to asheville and to buncombe county so it's just a
0: very strange odd and historic time for the city and and those in a lot of other ways so were they beginning to discuss policy? I mean, were there anything that was really maybe tipping their hand as to where it might go? They're obviously coming up on budget season here, so we're gonna to get to that over the next few months. But is there anything that's really tipping the hand here? Because of, you know, this is a year after the killing of George Floyd and the protests were coming up on that. There were a lot of budgetary demands made by the by, by the people who marched last year. So what sort of policy I don't know, directions did anything come out of this retreat, I guess, that indicated where the policy directions for the city lawmakers may be going?
2: Um, yeah. So, it, for one thing, the reparations program is high up there in terms of priorities. And if folks uh, remember, that was passed uh, back in July. It, it was a historic vote. Uh, there, you know, there were very few local governments that were talking about reparations back then. Evanston, Illinois. Is one of them that is slightly ahead of Asheville. Well, they're more than slightly. They've they've actually gone ahead and and uh, set up a payment program to help residents, black residents, with housing. But Asheville really helped kick off the discussion about reparations with that July vote. And now the question is, will the city and county, which has joined the city council, follow through? And what will that follow through be? And what will it look like? And how is it? How will it be shaped? And so that's really the the, the the main focus of the city council going for is How are we going to, how are we going to do this? Now I will say there, there have been some steps that have been taken. For example, um, as many people know, there was a moratorium on the uh, basically the, the, the allowing new hotels for more than a year. It was supposed to be a year, but because of the pandemic it was extended and the city council was trying to figure out what kind of new rules to come up with and that's that's the reason you can have a moratorium in north carolina you have to have um some rules that you're trying to get at and what they decided uh was because you can't get banned hotels outright state law just would not allow that even though that's what a lot of people wanted they wanted no more hotels they, they have felt we have reached a point of over tourism uh what the city has said is look if hotels will pay or participate in what we'll call a public benefits program they will get an expedited approval process in other words they won't have to come to the city council they can just deal with uh, city staff and maybe some volunteer boards and part of those public benefits is a reparations fund so basically hoteliers can pay into this reparations fund so uh, hotels will help you. Uh, help be funding it if if they want to do this. So an interesting thing that came out of this retreat is that, well, that public benefits idea might be extended to other types of development, uh, large housing developments. And so really, you could have these high-end uh, condo and housing developments uh, that might be facing a similar choice. They might say, hey, instead of trying to go through this larger political process of getting passed through the city council, if we Pay into a reparations fund or some other kind of public benefit, then we will uh we can get through the process more easily. And so that was something that came out in terms of reparations. But the the some of the keys will be what what will be done with with money. Um, what are some of the ideas? One of the, the basic themes of reparations has been to try to increase um, generational wealth for Black residents. And that's something uh that African-Americans all over the country, you know, have struggled with compared to to other groups.
0: Take us through the, where the city is now right now with reparations, and then we can go into whether it comes into this budget. But they're also doing this public process now. They're talking about a lot the history of it, why reparations are needed in Nashville's history. So tell us where that stands right now.
2: Right. So the, the process will be, uh, they've decided it's going to be something they call truth telling, where they're going to be pulling together people from uh, the community So people who have a lived experience, you could say, uh, local experts, uh, historians, people that can talk about what happened in Asheville in the past before anyone was alive, um, and talk about the harms that were done. And, And that is what will be used to start to bring together an idea for different programs. So housing and businesses looks like it may be a focus. Um, How can we help Black residents become homeowners? Because as we know, when you own a home, you have equity, you have something to hold on to that can often be passed on to the next generation. The same for businesses, and businesses are a different type of way to to grow wealth. Um, So it it feels like that those will be a focus. But again, they've got this process, this sort of truth-telling process. uh, And I've even heard some people relate it to um, South Africa's famous uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where the idea is to just air all of these grievances and talk about all these harms that happened uh, over generations um, and then use it to try to, to once those things are aired and once everyone feels like they've had their say to, to move forward, it's not a fast process. And so there's a tension between trying to do what city manager deborah campbell has said is is the right way to do it and also from activists who are saying let's see some movement you know let's see some things happen one thing that uh people have heard activists call for is police defunding and there's a big question out there right now as to uh what that means going forward uh deborah campbell um uh, and again campbell or i don't know if i said campbell is the the first African American city manager for Asheville uh, has said that she will not, quote unquote, defund police, but she wants to look at a program called Reimagining Public Safety. I I don't know if she's coined that term or what, but uh, I think another way that it's been put is divest and invest. The city did a little bit of that, you could say dip their toe into it uh, with a small decrease in the police budget that basically took services, um, including uh, noise ordinance um, enforcement and animal enforcement away from police and put them into different departments. The question going forward is what now, will there be a reduction in the police budget, uh, to, in order to fund services, some other types of services. And those, uh, have been openly talked about. And one thing that's been pointed to is the, um, counties, Buncombe County's program of community paramedics. Uh, the concept there is it's somebody who might not necessarily focus on a traditional medical emergency, a heart attack, but somebody who could show up and help somebody who's dealing with uh, a, a drug addiction issue. Uh, there could be an overdose issue. And so there, there would be you know, more of a traditional medical emergency you know, for which um, Narcan would be administered, which is a overdose re- reversal drug but also somebody that can that can move people toward uh, bettering their lives, towards getting out of a crisis. Um, and, and that would be, uh, the idea is that, is you would substitute that for calling police to somebody who's having a mental health crisis. Um, and, and because, you know, when an officer shows up in uniform, uh, that officer oftentimes, you know, is a, is a symbol of different things to somebody who might be going through a crisis. Maybe that person had a bad experience with police before, Uh, maybe that officer isn't trained and, and, and knowing how to deal with, with certain types of situations and, and has a limited amount of tools. And so, um, there is this concept of, again, divest and invest that the city council is looking at. And that, that also is a high priority from, uh, that came out of the retreat. Um, they're also looking at, um, what's interesting is, uh, an increase in salaries for, uh, city employees, because right now uh, a study that was recently done for the city said that they have an 18 percent turnover rate among their roughly uh, 1,200 person workforce. So the raises recommended would come to nine million dollars, which is which is kind of steep.
0: So just again, going back to the timeline on this, is something going to come this truth-telling process that Asheville's going through right now? And some of the other things, is any of that going to be finished by the time this most current budget needs to be finished over the summer? Will we see any big strides forward on reparations in this upcoming budget, or is that something really kind of gets pushed to next year?
2: That's a great question. I I do not think you are going to see massive changes in terms of reparations because the the program that Deborah Campbell is pushing is one that is, is much more gradual. the The budget year starts July one, so the city council will need to have something passed before then. They, I think, June twenty second is the current date. Here is the thing hanging out there, though: is what about the police budget? Police have seen a large amount of turnover um, since the protests, and activists are still calling for a reduction in police funding. And Deborah Campbell has not answered whether she anticipates there to be any reduction in police budget maybe maybe there'll just be a, a line holding in terms of police budget in other words not an increase we don't know yet so that is a question mark out there that that and that
0: will be answered um, by this budget, by this next budget year. Last question is also something a lot of people have been talking about. It also is a sign of Asheville's growth and that is property taxes. And this week at the Tuesday meeting, uh, sort of where the plan on where we might be going with property taxes in Nashville was introduced. So tell us what was introduced this week.
2: That's right. So this year is a very confusing year because it's a revaluation year and every, everybody that owns property and even people that, that don't may know that the County sent out assessors uh, all over Buncombe. And what they did is um, they gave basically the government's estimate on what your property is worth. And um, that has to happen at least every eight years, but it also happens more frequently if the market gets out of, if if sort of the government assessed values get out of whack with the market, which you can imagine uh, has happened at Nashville just because the market is pushing up so high. So again, it's, it's a confusing year because if Asheville and Buncombe County, for example, and they both set tax rates, if they it's possible that they could lower their tax rates and you could still see a pretty substantial tax bill increase because your property value jumped up. So in 2003, the North Carolina state legislature uh, passed a law that called on these local governments to declare a revenue neutral rate. And the idea there is to show um, residents, property owners, what the rate would be for the government to bring in the same amount of revenue year to year, plus um, an increase for, for new construction that's been built. And that gives you a benchmark. That way you can say, oh, if you, if you don't lower the rate to this, then you're essentially giving me a, a property tax increase. Well, uh, on April 13th, during a city council budget work session, the, uh, the new permanent uh, Asheville CFO, Tony McDowell, Uh, talked about this revenue neutral rate. And it sounds like they're leaning toward it. Now, I will say I had a discussion on April 14th with Tony McDowell, and he clarified and backed away uh, from it a little bit and said, look, the assumption is more academic at this point. We will tell people what the revenue neutral rate is, but it is possible that the city council may come back and say, you know what, we need more revenue and we're going to look to property tax for it. So it is possible that 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 rate could creep up uh, over revenue neutral. So again, look for a revenue neutral rate to be published uh, or at least come out uh, sometime soon from the city. And what that will allow people to do is to at least do a calculation and say, I take this rate and i I take my property value that the the government has given me, that the county has given me. You take that property value, you divide it by a hundred, and you multiply it by the rate, and that tells you your annual tax bill. I know that's confusing. We have done a story that talks that kind of walks you through the uh, the equation. You can check it out at uh, CitizenTimes.com if you want, and uh, but also people can just pay attention and wait and see.
0: Asheville Citizen Times reporter Joel Burgess. Find links to his reporting in the show description for this episode, and you can hear a longer version of our talk with the free BPR mobile app or at bpr.org. One of our frequent flyers, Dr. Chris Cooper, joins us next on the porch after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Matt Bush, and you're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. The North Carolina General Assembly is a few months into its session, and the pace has been slow, even more so if you compare it to our neighboring states like Georgia and Virginia. Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University joins us via Zoom for another chat about politics and catches us up on what's happening in Raleigh and why it's been a slow go so far.
3: You know, one is that we've got this this session that can continue as long as we need it to continue essentially. And so we're allowed to kind of keep expanding. That is not true in every state and it's not true in all of our surrounding states. And then we've got divided government, right? We've got a uh, Republican-controlled General Assembly, both the House and the Senate side. And then, of course, the executive branch, the governor, is controlled by the Democratic Party. And so a lot of what happens in the General Assembly, particularly right now, is kind of posturing for the public, because the reality is most bills um, from the Democrats won't get out of the General Assembly, and most bills from the Republicans will be vetoed by the governor, And given the fact that the Republicans don't have a supermajority control role, they're unlikely to become law. So in some ways, we're waiting um, while we watch all of our neighboring states pass all this legislation that we may love and may hate.
0: Right. And let's go into that a bit, uh, you know, looking to the south, our neighbors to the south, South Carolina and Georgia have passed some very conservative bills, notably in South Carolina, a bill that effectively bans most abortions. And in Georgia, uh, the much talked about voter voting bill, Virginia to the north, they've legalized marijuana. Maryland slightly more to the north of that, passed a very, very extensive police rights reform bill. North Carolina in that line geographically is right in the middle and also is doing very little right now. So is that advantageous in any way or is it disadvantageous? You know, I think it depends,
3: right? If, if you support an activist government that needs to be out there um, doing things, being active, then it's a bad thing. But if you kind of think that the the government that governs best is the one that governs least, then it could be considered a good thing, right? So one person's gridlock is another person's Um, kind of hands-off approach. So I think it really depends on your perspective and what you want out of our government. Um, But what it does mean is that there's just simply fewer laws that are being passed into into policy and certainly fewer extreme laws or very conservative or very liberal
0: laws that are being passed. So does this inaction really fit the mood of North Carolina right now?
3: I think it does. I I think it fits the mood of North Carolina in 2021 very well, right? We're not a red state. We're not a blue state. We're not a state where people want very, very conservative policies or a state where people want very, very liberal policies. We're a state that is kind of hard to figure out. We're a state that is split. We're right in the middle of the country. And so in a lot of ways, having divided government without much action coming out of government seems to make some sense. It seems to fit us. And, and I think you can see the pro and the con of that, right? So if you're on the conservative side, you may look to our South and to our West and wish we looked a little bit more like Georgia, or South Carolina. If you're on the more liberal side, you may wish that we looked a little bit more like Virginia. And the reality is there's about half the folks in the state that are on each of those sides. So I think we're getting the government that as a whole, as a collective, we
0: want. So what does that mean, though, for any rather large things happening over the next two years with this particular General Assembly session? Um, Yeah, again, looking at what the four states we mentioned here before did pass very, very large measures, very substantial measures. Is North Carolina going to see anything like that? And well, let's start there. Is North Carolina going to see anything like that over the next two years?
3: I think it's very unlikely that North Carolina will see something like that as long. It is because, again, the governor's mansion is controlled by the Democrats. And although we were the last state in the country to give the governor the veto, we did give the governor the veto power over everything except redistricting and a couple of other kinds of bills. And so whatever the Republican majority wants to put out, they've got to get Democrats to go with them or else the governor's going to veto it. They won't override it and it won't become law. So, and if you're looking for examples of why, how that plays out, we actually haven't had a state budget in a couple of years in the state of North Carolina. We we'll just keep using the old one again. And that's because
0: the two sides cannot come to any consensus. What does it mean to not have a state budget or a new state budget and just having to keep operating on the ones that were done from the prior decade?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, it means that we're essentially moving off of old priorities. Um, and so old priorities that were in place um, with, uh, With a different gubernatorial administration, certainly. And um, so in some ways, some folks might think that that's a good thing for the Republican Party. The Democrats clearly are not getting the budget that they want. At the same time, it's, it's almost by definition, not a very forward thinking or forward looking budget. It is quite literally a budget from years ago.
0: Is there any more incentive? Is there any possibility that there could be more bipartisanship or negotiation over the major issues? We know the most particular one, which is why there hasn't been a state budget for several years, is Medicaid expansion. But on anything else, is there any more incentive this year? And is there any more inkling that we might see some negotiation and bipartisanship in Raleigh? You know… I would
3: hope so, but I just don't see a lot of hope. So if you um, you know compare what's happening, for example, on some of these election bills, you've got the Republicans putting forward an election bill that would limit uh, early voting a little bit, that would um, take away the ability for local boards of elections to accept private donations, um, for, to help fund things around elections. It's probably going to get through the General Assembly. It'll probably be vetoed by the governor. Um, And the Democrats have put up their own companion bill that would, they say, safeguard voting rights and and mandate automatic voter registration. That one's sort of unlikely to get out of the General Assembly. And so you're seeing each party kind of volley up their own bill and their own um, kind of a, a tit for tat sort of thing. The Republicans promote something democrats promote the opposite or the democrats promote something the republicans promote the opposite so i don't see a whole lot of hope i hope i'm wrong
0: so let's go back to those election bills that are in the general assembly you said there are two kind of the posturing here both sides saying this is what we want with it but really nothing that is going to pass by the time the next election is held so go through those again and what makes them i guess different particularly let's look at that republican bill is it really much different from what was passed in georgia
3: yeah, it, it is smaller. So you can think of it almost like a, a, a very a shrunk down version of the Georgia bill in some ways. So there's just four primary provisions here. This is called the Election Integrity Act. And I think you can tell a lot about the parties by just the names, right? The Republican version is the Election Integrity Act. The Democratic version is the Safeguarding Voting Rights Act. And So the names kind of tell you how each party is trying to play themselves, one around integrity, One about voting rights. But the Republican version would say that you can't accept private donations for the purpose of administering elections um, or employing individuals on a temporary basis. So there's been a lot of attention, particularly in conservative media, about Facebook putting money into this. But it's not only groups like Facebook. There's actually out in California, the Schwarzenegger Institute. Yes, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Institute gives money towards local election bodies to help fund them. So you're a local board of election and you say, hey, we're trying to, you know, pay our poll workers better, reduce the lines, or do other kinds of infrastructure needs. And so the Schwarzenegger Institute will give grants and say you can do that. This bill, if it passed, would say you can't accept those in North Carolina. And then the kind of headline one is that it will reduce the deadlines um, for both requesting and accepting absentee by mail balloting. So if you remember... Prior to 2020, absentee by mail um, was about 4% of ballots cast in the state of North Carolina. In 2020, it was over 19% of ballots cast. And, you know, about 30,000 of those were accepted after Election Day or requested um, kind of uh, closer to Election Day than this bill would allow. And so this bill would say, hey, if you have a ballot, it has to be received in the board of elections by election day, unless it is a uniformed overseas um, ballot. So it just kind of reduces the number or the length of the time we'll accept ballots. So the Democrats argue this is a bad thing that we should, because of the vagaries of the post office, be accepting ballots that come in a few days later. The Republicans are arguing, hey, if you make the deadline sooner, people will get it in sooner. So you've got, again, a lot of partisan infighting on just what would likely
0: happen. Back to the bit about the local election boards, what were those donations being used for um, that came from groups that you were mentioning there and so many others? What were they being used for last year?
3: So sometimes they're used to pay for, um, you know, not so much in North Carolina, but in other states are used sometimes to pay for poll workers. Poll workers cost money and they're expensive. And we have a real problem in this country. It's hard to recruit poll workers. It is particularly hard to recruit diverse poll workers. So we know that people are more likely to have their, to believe their vote is counted if it is counted by, or they encounter somebody who looks like them, who represents their community. So part of it is to to help with that. Part of it is to fund small bits of technology. So if, um, let's say a state, you know, a local board of election in Texas for the sake of argument might need um, a little bit more money to fund a voting machine or to fund some new piece of software the the Schwarzenegger Institute or other institutes might come in and help them do that. It's, it's, um, much like you'd see with all sorts of nonprofits who just you know grant money kind of granting organizations, it's just that the goal of these groups, to help improve the administration of elections.
0: You've also been tracking what the legislators in Western North Carolina are doing uh, during this session. We have several new ones, a couple new faces or familiar faces back in the legislature as well. So you have a lot of new people there. So what's the takeaway so far looking at bills that have been introduced? Obviously, they can either introduce a bill as a primary sponsor or a secondary sponsor and go from there. So what have you been seeing? That's right. And,
3: and so we should keep in mind, I probably should have mentioned before, North Carolina has this thing called crossover day, which says that certain kinds of bills need to cross over from one chamber to the other by a certain date. And crossover date this year, I think, is May 13th. So that's going to you're going to see kind of a big flurry of activity happen right around May 13th. And a lot of these bills that don't cross over won't ever make it out. And so most of these bills, again, we'll never hear from again. The, um, some of the folks in Western North Carolina, you see a lot of specialization, right? Mike Clampett, uh, the 119th, um, which is Jackson and Swain and, and a little bit of Haywood County, uh, has been putting forward some bills around criminal justice issues, public safety issues. That tends to be what he does when he's in office and he's been in office on and on for, on for and off for a number of years. He's also um, a primary sponsor of a bill that would introduce term limits for Congress, which is kind of an interesting one. Um, we're seeing a lot of the Asheville-based folks have been introducing a lot of local bills. And this is normal. This is a good thing to some degree, right? You want your local representative to be introducing bills that mean something for your community and perhaps not other communities. And so you're seeing a lot of those even out west with Gillespie, who's a new member from the 120th State House district. He's been introducing a lot of local bills, for example, one that would um, give in-state tuition to community college folks in a very few Georgia counties. You can imagine, right? You're representing far western North Carolina. That's maybe a bill that makes some sense. Tim Moffat, who was, of course, in the General Assembly, out of the General Assembly, and is now back in the General Assembly, has been um, fairly prominent, really um, uh, co-sponsoring a a series of bills around alcohol. But he was also making some headlines around these reopening bills. So we, of course, had Governor Cooper, um, who was Sort of fighting COVID by saying things needed to be closed down a little bit longer. And then the Republicans arguing against that. Tim Moffat was. Um, definitely one of the folks leading the charge, trying to say we need to reopen more of North Carolina. And you definitely see that in the bills that he's introducing.
0: One legislator has taken a far more prominent role, and it's sort of grown each year that he's been in the legislature, is Senator Chuck Edwards of Henderson County, the Republican there. He's primary sponsored some very large bills this year, including uh, the, the you know having uh, sheriff's departments cooperate with ICE across North Carolina. This is one that came up before, also about city governments or local governments that cut their police budgets and all that. He's taken a larger role, hasn't he? He has, he's become, um, you know, I think he was more of a a behind the scenes player in some ways. I mean,
3: he would get coverage every now and again and get attention certainly with some of the the comments about the city of Asheville a few times. But um, if you just look through the number of bills he sponsored um, as a primary sponsor this round, it, R exceeds what he has in the future. And of course, this has led to a lot of speculation as to why. Some folks might argue, hey, he's just doing this because he's been in office longer. He's kind of learned his chops. He's learned his way around the General Assembly. He's gaining seniority. And of course, some other people think, well, maybe this means that he might be more likely to challenge Madison Cawthorn in the future. And perhaps there is hat in the ring for 2022 topic that we are sworn against talking
0: about. Yeah, we're going to stop there on that. And if listeners know or if they don't, uh, we have sort of a rule, unwritten rule or written rule or, you know, public rule here between Chris and I that we're really not going to talk about next year's election until at least July of this year, because we do really want to focus on governing and policy and the things that are happening right now, because that's so important. And let's see a lot of the new people who were elected uh, to these uh, positions. Let's see what they actually do while they're in office before we start thinking about what may happen again next year. So don't worry, we know uh, we know how many ca- congressional candidates are declaring right now, but we're going to have plenty of time to talk about them later in the year and into next year. One thing that is going to affect, and we are going to talk about it right now, is the census. And we're still waiting for what's going to come from the census for North Carolina and how that's going to impact elections this year, municipal elections, much less elections that take place next year. So where do we stand on the census figures coming?
3: So um, think about this in, in kind of a couple of chunks, right? So the first chunk is going to come later this month, and that is kind of these Big numbers that say about how many people live in each state. And so that's the time where we are going to move from um, almost certain to certain that North Carolina will receive or has earned, depending on your perspective, a 14th congressional seat, a 14th congressional district, right? So right now we have 13 members of Congress in the state of North Carolina. When the new census numbers come out statewide, we are almost certainly going to, um, we've increased population enough to gain a 14th member. Um, some of the Rust Belt states are going to be losing members of Congress. We're going to gain one. So what that's gonna mean is, in addition to the general assembly redistricting, that has to happen also, Um, we're going to drop a 14th district somewhere in the state of North Carolina. And there's going to be a whole lot of speculation as to where that is. And it's important and it's interesting. And I encourage folks to pay attention, but also pay attention to That 14th seat doesn't just get dropped into a vacuum, right? Where it falls, the other districts need to then get smaller as a result. So it's almost like dropping a big, you know, boulder in the middle of a lake. The ripple effects do matter, and they're going to matter out in the 11th congressional district where we live. They're going to matter back east. They're going to affect every district in the state of north carolina so that's the first thing that's going to happen that'll happen pretty soon as far as just knowing we're getting the 14th then the the kind of micro level data that um uh, that the legislature leans on in the gis geographic information systems folks use to kind of create these maps that's been delayed um for months So we're looking now at actually not getting those data until October. So what does that mean in the real world? That means knowing the kind of block level data, how many people live in these very small geographic areas is information we're not gonna know until well into the fall. We're gonna be getting ready for Halloween by the time we're understanding what these real numbers look like. So that means we're going to start the redistricting process much later than usual. And in terms of the 2021 elections, that means almost certainly we're going to kick those elections to 2022. So it's going to have, again, all sorts of big ripple effects, a lot of which we're not going to understand until the fall. Once the new numbers come out, the General Assembly is then going to get to work redrawing district lines for 170 seats in the North Carolina General Assembly, and then 14 seats in our Congress.
0: And typically the census figures come out well before Halloween is what you're kind of saying right now. So almost certainly, as you said, the 2021 elections which are usually just municipal elections town councils board of aldermen and water and soil conservation district seats are going to be pushed to next year so again we'll have a very long ballot once we begin to talk about that but there are other things the census does and and, and it's just very important you it's a great breakdown of all the things that it does for your election but it's also delaying some other things isn't it that we don't get this information? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So
3: this is um, right. we're concentrating on the political here. But when, in terms of all sorts of benefits that the federal government gives to the states, right, when you try to figure out how does the federal government know how much money to give? Well, if they're giving per capita figures, then it really matters to know how many people there are per capita, right? How many people actually live in a state or live in a smaller unit of geography? So the political consequences are absolutely the ones that make the headlines, but there are substantive policy consequences that are affected as well. So this is a really good example of why this big, slow-moving bureaucracy in Suitland, Maryland, the United States Census Bureau, is affecting lots of things about how people's daily lives are affected here in Western North Carolina.
0: And that's a lot of funding, and this is, you know, tax, tax day week. Uh, where, where this will broadcast the day after tax day that's our funding that's our money essentially and it's not coming to the places that it would typically come to No, that's that's exactly right. And so,
3: yeah, it is. We are we're operating in this weird vacuum with very, very little information for an extended period of time. And it has real consequences, again, not just for the the silly horse race stuff, but for actual governing, for money in people's pockets, for funding for roads, for things that really matter in your life and in my life on a daily basis.
0: That's political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University. And that does it for The Porch this week. The BPR news team is Helen Shickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Kanep, Matt Piken, Corey Valencourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. Listen to episodes of The Porch, plus BPR's two other podcasts, Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, and The Waters and Harvey Show, anytime with the free BPR mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. Thank you to all of you who contributed during our spring membership drive. We went above our goal again without interrupting programming again and those most beautiful two phrases are only possible because of you if you didn't give during the drive it's okay because it's never too late to give you can do so anytime at bpr.org to support all of our journalism programming and music that you hear day in and day out on blue ridge public radio stay safe we'll see you again on the porch real soon